Well, this scripture is kind of a continuation of our Easter passage last week, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about how they tie together and um, how we continue the theme. Last week, we talked a little bit about um, this new creation, this new thing happening, and, and kind of looked at how John highlights some details in the resurrection of Jesus that connect us clear back to Genesis and to God's creating the world and it's as though a new creation, something completely different or, or, or new, complete, is happening with the resurrection of Jesus. And there's going to be some of those uh, details that John continues to highlight in our passage this morning. Um, but I'm going to kind of look at this passage in three parts. <clears throat> And uh, I wasn't sure which order I was going to do these three parts in, and so we're changing up a little bit here. But one of the hardest parts of this passage for me comes in verse 23. And so we're going to kind of get it out of the way here at the beginning and then roll into kind of how the rest of this story fits together. There's a couple of tough lines there in verse 23 where Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is one of those hard sayings of Jesus because it sounds like we're being kind of almost put in the place of judge, judging, uh, not quite sure how that uh, fits in with the rest of Scripture and the rest of um, what Jesus says uh, about us not playing the role of judge. There's a whole history and discussion of what exactly these words mean and a, a history of how they've been used or misused in the church. On one level, it does seem to make us the judge of others, deciding which sins to keep and which sins to forgive. Uh, but I found one of the, the commentaries that I was looking at very helpful, um, and commentator Gail O'Day points out that in John's writing, all throughout uh, the gospel according to John, sin is not a moral failure, it is a theological failure. It's somebody failing to recognize who Jesus is. And this really happens all throughout the Gospel of John, where people aren't sure about where Jesus came from, they're misunderstanding what he's saying. It's right, right up front, you know, you've got Nicodemus hearing about being born again, and he, you know, how do I do that? How do I enter my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus is saying, well, you're born from above. And all throughout John, people are misunderstanding and failing to recognize who Jesus is, where Jesus comes from, and what Jesus' mission is all about. And so uh, John kind of uses sin in these terms. And so the Pharisees, for example, can act in completely congruent fashion according to the Old Testament law and still miss the mark on who Jesus is because they fail to understand and vice versa, those who are, be call, are, are, are being called sinners by the Pharisees and scribes can actually be in the right, forgiven and loved as they come to realize who Jesus really is despite their broken pasts. 
not excusing the actions, not excusing moral failures, but they have come to recognize who Jesus is. Another note is that these words are given to the community of Jesus' followers, to the church, not to an individual, not to a class of certain holy people that you know, only the priests can determine which sins to forgive and which sins not to forgive, but is given to the community of faith, to all the disciples that are gathered there. Something to be worked out in community, by community doesn't solve the difficulties of these problems. I'm still kind of mulling them over, wrestling with these passages, uh, trying to figure out what, what does that mean to forgive some sins and retain some sins. And I'm not entirely sure how we as a church practice that. Um, It's kind of tough. So I'm just kind of going to throw that out there, this very tough passage. I'll let that sink in. You can kind of give me feedback on that later as we, we look at that passage. But we're going to jump into the rest that I think is a little bit clearer and a little bit uh, help more, well, I won't say more helpful, uh, but a little bit more um, understandable for us today as we look at the rest of this passage. And as we do that, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. We ask this in the name of the risen Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, the last two parts of this story, Jesus' appearance to the disciples and then the story of Thomas asking questions, we're going to kind of tackle in reverse order. Um, It's important to remember that Thomas doesn't experience Jesus uh, suddenly appearing in the room the first time. You know, this is immediately following the resurrection. The disciples are gathered, except Thomas, and Jesus is suddenly in their midst. Thomas misses that. He's not there for that part of the story. The disciples tell Thomas about their experience, but Thomas questions it. And he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails um, and my hands in his side, I will not believe. Why does Thomas question the validity of the report of Jesus' resurrection? Why do you think, if you put yourself in Thomas' shoes, why would you be questioning the report of the disciples? It's a, yeah, it's the first time that it happens, right? Somebody died, and now you're telling me they're back. There's good reason why Thomas asks some hard questions. There's good reasons why Thomas says, unless I see it, unless I touch it, I don't think so. Because Thomas knows what we know, that folks who die tend to stay dead, Right? So it's not an absurd question. We, all, you know, we labeled Thomas doubting Thomas as though there's some, uh, something missing in his faith. But he's asking the question that we all should be asking if somebody comes and says, somebody's alive again. Let me see it. Prove it. Right? 
For me, it's only natural to ask questions and want proof of someone being raised from the dead. Um, I think Thomas asks and wants evidence the same as we would all want. It's good for us to kind of test things out, to ask questions. You know, it happens in our world all over the place today where we should hear what's being said in any number of places and ask some questions, to think about it critically, to ask how does this, how does this connect, how does this jive with, with the good news of Jesus? How does this connect with what I know to be true? We should ask important questions like that. You know, something else jumped out at me this week as I was studying uh, this passage. And we bump into uh, the, a Greek word, uh, pistuo. It's translated believe here. It's connected to the word for faith or faithfulness. And in its verb form, we often translate it as believe. But it also means trust, to trust something. Let me ask you, is there a difference between believing in something and trusting in something? Not a rhetorical question, you can respond. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, so the old, the old story about the guy who's tightrope walking across Niagara Falls and people have seen him do it several times and, you know, can, do you believe that I can make it back across and now do you trust? He gets a wheelbarrow up there, I think, and, and offers somebody to get in. So what's happening there? It's, it's live it out now. It's, it's action involved. It's not just intellectually assenting, uh, 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 agreeing with something, it's acting upon it. That's important that this isn't, these are not opposing ideas. But what's happening here? For me, belief is usually about agreeing with something intellectually or knowing something to be true. It might be a passionately held truth that you know deep in your being. A trust carries more of an experiential acting on something. And I'm not sure that it's uh, one or the other in the passage, but I want you to hear this uh, verse 27 and, and verse 29 and substituting the word trust in place of believe. Jesus said, do not doubt but trust. Jesus said to him, have you trusted because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to trust. Who have believed, yes, and acted upon it. Who have taken steps of faith. Who have uh, trusted that Jesus is alive and have lived it out. If we change the word believe to trust, how does that change the emphasis of the passage for you? Think about that. Is it just agreeing with a statement of faith? That's important. But 
taking the step then of living it out, acting upon it, living in ways that are uh, connected to the ways Jesus taught us to live. Believe and trust and live it out. So now let's jump back to the first part of the story. After all, the disciples in the room when Jesus first show up, they also see the evidence of the wounds before they really grasp what's going on. I mean, Thomas verbalizes the question unless I, or verbalizes the thought, unless I touch it, unless I see it. But John here, uh, when, when Jesus enters the room, John points out that it's after showing the wounds that they start to respond and they understand what's happening. So the, those that are gathered in that room are also seeing the wounds, seeing the, the, the physical embodiment of Jesus and are starting to respond. Here in this passage, we're told that the disciples are gathered together. Uh, it's interesting to note that it's not just the 11, which is 12 minus Judas, right? It's not just the 11 that are gathered there. In John, when John says the disciples, it usually is defined a little broader than just the 12. These are the community of faith, the people that are surrounding Jesus in his life and his ministry. Mary Magdalene, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, right? There's others that are connected and involved, not just the 11. This is the community of faith is gathered in this place. And the doors were locked which highlights the miraculous nature of Jesus suddenly appearing in the room, but they're, they're hiding there uh, for fear of the Jewish authorities, afraid of what might happen. Jesus is suddenly then in their midst, and he says, peace be with you. I imagine this is not a, a peaceful scene when suddenly Jesus is standing in the middle of the room, Right? I would interpret this first peace be with you as everybody just calm down, right? Suddenly Jesus is standing in the room. Some of them have had some interaction, have seen the tomb is empty, but now Jesus is suddenly in their midst. I don't know how you would react if a dead person is suddenly standing in the room. I'd be freaking out a little bit. Um, Peace be with you might not cover it, to be honest. <laughs> right? Uh, but Jesus is in there. Peace be with you was a standard Jewish greeting. But once they all settle down, they take in the wounds. They see Jesus' wounds on his hands and his side. And it says here, after they've experienced it, after they see the physical wounds, after they've been assured this is not just a ghost in their midst, it says now they rejoice. They rejoice. And Jesus says again to them, peace be with you. Why does he say it twice? Now that everyone has calmed down a little bit, the disciples can really receive Christ's peace. Now it's not just everybody calm down. It's, all right, now that we've, we're, we're kind of coming back together here, receive 
my peace. My peace be with you. It's actually a fulfillment of Jesus' words in John 14, 27, where Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. They've gathered in this room together. They've locked the doors because they are afraid. They've just freaked out because Jesus is suddenly in their midst. And Jesus says, peace be with you. What I told you when we were eating together before the crucifixion, that I'm going to leave my peace with you, here it is. Here it's happening. Come back to life. I've conquered sin and death and the grave. And now my peace, I want to leave with you. Peace be with you. So now the blessing of Christ's peace can be extended to them beyond the resurrection. And then Jesus says something further. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus, the Word made flesh, who makes his dwelling among us. Make his dwelling, that, that, uh, those words are connected to the Old Testament picture of the tabernacle. God tented with his people. God tabernacled with his people. And this is what John is tapping into from John 1 through the, through the end. God is making his dwelling with us. The embodiment, the presence of God in our midst. And so God in Christ made his tabernacle with humanity. Eugene Peterson said, Jesus moved into the neighborhood. Jesus lived in the midst of real people, sharing life with them, eating and drinking with them, turning water into wine to keep the wedding party going, eating with questionable people that the religious elites labeled sinners and tax collectors. Jesus comes and he's healing and rescuing. He's flipping over tables of systems that needed upended. He's giving up his life for the healing of others. Now in one way, this incarnation, Jesus coming, God taking on flesh, is a completely unique event. It is something that cannot be duplicated. Jesus coming, living, dying, being raised to new life, uh, bearing the sins of the world is not something that you and I can do. So it's not in this way that we're being sent. But as Jesus comes and lives life with people, as he moves into the neighborhood, as he's just rubbing elbows with all kinds of folks, seeking healing, seeking wholeness, pointing people to the kingdom, as the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends us. He sets the pattern that all disciples, all disciples, not just the 11, but all the disciples are tasked with. 
As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And then it says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And here we are actually connecting back to this idea of new garden and new creation. Think back to the Genesis story. Flip back clear to the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 2. God creates the human ones. And what does God do? He breathes life into them. He breathes his spirit into them. He creates them uniquely as his icons, as his images, and installs them in the temple of the garden and breathes his spirit into them. And now Jesus, we talked this last week, bursting forth into the darkness in the midst of the garden, being mistaken as a gardener, showing us that a new creation is happening. And now here, God in the flesh is breathing his spirit once again into his people, into the ones that he is sending out. He is breathing his breath. And so we serve the scent and sending God. Throughout Scripture, God is constantly sending God's self. From the very beginning, God is, is sending His Word through His breath, is, is, is sending Himself out in creation. He's sending Abraham. He's sending Moses. He's sending Himself through a burning bush. He's sending Himself through the law, through the prophets. He's sending people like Samuel and he's sending people like David so that they can demonstrate ways to live in connection with God. They're not perfect people. They're all flawed. They all have their, their, uh, their downsides. They have their brokenness. They have their moments where they're not living faithfully in connection to God. But they're sent. Here in John 20, the disciples, not just the 11, the disciples are breathed into and sent out. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Mary Magdalene, extravagant eyebrow raising kind of love and devotion. We talked about her during Lent. Peter, quick to action, also quick to putting his foot in his mouth. Sent out. John, the beloved, somewhat reserved, theologically perceptive love, sent out. Thomas, who wants proof, called to believe and trust is sent out, but also all those who continue to be disciples. Those who have placed their belief and trust in the teacher, redeemer, and Lord Jesus Christ. And who do it not just once, but continually put their belief and their trust in Jesus. 
All those called disciples here are sent out to eat and drink with other sinners, to seek healing for the sick, the marginalized, the wounded, and the weary, to invite neighbors to eat bread and drink water, not just at food trucks, Although I will say, those food trucks are connected to this. As we get to know people, as we get to eat and drink with people, as we get to uh, rub elbows with people living all kinds of ways and, and going through all kinds of stuff, but inviting folks to the bread of life and to the living water of Jesus. As the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends us. Disciples, those who are striving to follow Jesus. We all do it imperfectly, we mess up, we're all broken in some ways and yet breathed into, filled with God's Spirit, sent to love the lost, the least, and show another way of living, to show folks what it means to live in connection with the kingdom of God. As the Father sent the Son, the Son sends us. And that can be a little overwhelming for me sometimes, a little scary for me sometimes. I don't know how you feel about being sent out. I want you to know that we have all been breathed into. All breathed into. And so as we go about our days, as we go about our work and, and school and volunteering and whatever your routines are about in the week, may you know that you are sent. Sent by Jesus to demonstrate, to announce the kingdom of God, to show folks what it looks like to live connected to God the Father. I'm going to invite you to continue to think about what it means to be sent, to think about what it means to be breathed into by the breath of God as we stand and uh, turn in our hymnals and sing, Move in Our Midst, Thou Spirit of God. Would you stand?